Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with James Morton. James is currently a professor of exercise metabolism and nutrition at Liverpool John Moores University. He's also the head of nutrition for Sky Team and has led the nutrition strategy for the team through its victories at the Tour de France since 2015. From 2010 to 2015, James provided support in conditioning and nutrition with the Liverpool Football Club of the Premier League and also specializes in providing nutritional conditioning support to a range of professional boxers, MAA athletes, and jockeys. To date, he has authored over 120 research publications in the field of nutrition, physiology, and metabolism, as well as numerous books and book chapters on these topics. He also directs nutrition-related research projects for the English Institute of Sport and as Director of World-Class Knowledge for Science and Sport. I've invited James on Leave Your Mark because I had the unique opportunity of learning from him last year in a very special program that I was part of. And I saw that not only, not only was James a world-class performance professional, but he had so much insight beyond that scope that would make for a wonderful conversation. I'm excited to have him on the show. Welcome, James. Hello, Scotty. Thanks very much for the invitation to speak. <laughs> If you could, you know, you worked with a lot of different sports. If you could only work with one, what what would you, which one would you work with? Oh, that's that's a good question to start. Um, I guess it's an interesting question because your opinions on sport and academia and what means something to you changes over the years, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So maybe when I started out in my career, I was definitely. Um, definitely all focused on professional football. You know, that was like my, my be all and end all. And I wanted to work in that sport. Um, as I've progressed, different sports gave you different things. Having said all that, probably the one that I enjoy most is probably professional boxing. And I like that because of the rawness of the sport. Um, you know, you walk into a boxing gym and it's, it's pretty much the bare essentials of what an athlete needs. Mm. There's a punch bag, there's a skipping rope, there's a few weights in the corner. And I often think that sport has forgot what it's all about and become a bit too technical at times and a bit too high tech. And I just love the rawness of a boxing gym and I love the work ethic that the fighters have. I love the close relationships they have with their coaches. And I think when you strip it all back, to me, there's a real authenticity there of sport. Mm. Um, And of course, the heavyweight championship of the world is still the biggest prize in sport. (laughs) Um, you know a big fight night in Vegas it's a a list of who's who sitting ringside and it's it's great to see Wow. 
Yeah, I'm going to circle back to that and your feelings in that. I want to sort of strike a chord from the the beginning of of you. You were born in Belfast, which is a place of, you know, has been a place of contention and struggle and and war at times and things. I'd just love to hear about how that shaped you as a person growing up in, in that city. Yes, well, I mean, Belfast is a city that um, I'm tremendously proud of to come from Belfast, and I'm, I'm proud of what it stands for as a city and everything that it's been through. I was born in 1982, so I guess I really grew up in the 90s. Um, and at that time, the troubles were kind of coming to an end. I mean, the Good Friday Agreement was signed in 1986. Having said that, the, I still did witness a lot growing up in those um early adolescence and teenage years and I don't mind saying that you're kind of um, you're not taught this but you kind of grow up in this environment where Catholics and Protestants just don't like each other (laughs) and and you don't know any different you know it's kind of just the way that you're um, the environment that you're exposed to and my parents didn't bring me up that way of course not but running around the streets and um being involved in things that adolescents and teenagers do. That's what you're exposed to. Um, and then as you become older and you move away from Belfast, you realise that none of these things are important anyway. But I'm not sure I would have come to that realisation if I hadn't have got out of the city when I did. Mm. But I love it. I love Belfast people. I love Irish people, north and south of the border. I think Irish people have a if we don't take ourselves too serious, we, we work hard and we play hard, we enjoy ourselves. Um, and it was that real working class background and the values that's um, instilled in me. That's, that's shaped a lot of my philosophy and attitudes towards life. I want to um, play off that a little bit, not to get into the politics of that reality, but in the concept of bias that's born of... Um, not so much ignorance, but a, but a, but a sense that you don't have a more experience than the experience that you're in. And so you said something to the effect of, you know, once I left and I, I sort of understood it differently, I had a different perspective. And when you look at what you do now from a science-based perspective and you see some of the bias that goes into some people's opinion in the industries that you're in, um, does it make you reflect differently on how people see things in that when they don't have, they're not exposed to a lot of, a lot of different experiences. Well, I think that's the great thing about life, Scotty, is that we're, we're all a product of what we've been exposed to and our upbringing. But that also means that we're not limited because we can learn so much more if we are exposed to so many different environments and so many different people. And as I've become, I guess, more mature over the year, over the years where I was quite frightened of change in my earlier years. Now I embrace change mm-hmm. and I love, I love speaking to people from all sorts of different, I love to talk to people about different religious views um, because all of these things just mean that you're so much more exposed to different ways of thinking. And it's mm-hmm. the different ways of thinking that make you so much more richer. One of my favorite quotes is the, the famous quote by Muhammad Ali, where he says that a man who views the world the same as 50 as what he did at 20 has wasted 30 years of his life. And I, I just think that's a, I mean, what a, what a true reflection of what, what life is all about, really. Mm-hmm. What was, um, when you look back at what you described as, you know, you were scared of change and now you embrace change, were there um, points of 
of embarkation for you or change that actually created that mindset that you can reflect back on when you were younger? Like what was the first one that sort of, uh, sort of watershed moment for you that changed the way you looked at life? Um, well, I, I don't know if it was, if it was a watershed moment, but as I said, I grew up in Belfast and I had two, two older sisters. So I was the youngest. Um, my oldest sister left to go to university when she was 18, of course, to go to Scotland. And I was 12 at the time. So then I, I remember the house being different all of a sudden because she left. Then my other sister left. She's four years older than me. So she left again when I was um, a couple of years later. And then all of a sudden I was in the house on my own. Mm-hmm. And then that, that was a big change. And we all go through this different change, don't we? And then I went to university and that was a big change, leaving Belfast to come to Liverpool. So probably the biggest change was when I was 22, when my dad died. And my dad died in a car accident. So that was the most sudden form of death, really like a heart attack and things that can happen to you. But that was quite, quite a horrific way to die, isn't it? A, a mm. car accident. Um, and because I was so close to my dad, I used to speak to him every day. He was he was definitely my best friend. He was definitely the one who influenced me the most. And that was a major change that from that point, life was just different. Mm-hmm. But I think you've now got to accept that change is inevitable. It's the only certainty in life is, is change mm-hmm. and death, really. Um, <laughs> so I think the quicker that you can get used to the fact that change is going to happen, the less stressed you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And you can just get on with your life, really. <laughs> <laughs> when um, when you were growing up, what drew you to um, going to school? Like, uh, and 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 then what was it about school, or what were you attracted to in school that allowed you to become sort of to specialize in what you've ended up specializing in? Well, it, I think a lot of it was by um, by luck, really, and and also parental influences. So in Northern Ireland, when you go to primary school, you have to take a, a test to determine whether you get into the grammar school or just a, like a normal comprehensive or secondary school. Um, and, and I passed that test to go to the, the grammar school. Now, I, I didn't want to go to the grammar school because I wanted to stay where all my mates from my area were going, predominantly because that's where the best football team was. <laughs> so, so I wanted to play for the best football team. And my mum almost um, almost forced it upon me that I had to go to this school. Now, when you look back on things that have really influenced you, that, that was probably one of the best decisions that's um, ever been made for me because that school, first of all, had Catholics and Protestants in it. It wasn't just Protestants. It had males and females. It had people from different social classes. And then all of a sudden I was there mixing with people that I would never have mixed with had I have stayed in my local area. And that school was very focused on, on education and um, giving people the best chance to succeed, really. And I, it's not to say that I wouldn't have been successful or, or done well had I went to a different school, but for sure that definitely had a big impact on me. Mm-hmm. Um, how I get into sports science really was a chance. It was by luck because I had actually filled in my application process to go to university for six physics courses. My my A levels was uh, mathematics and mechanics, physics and geography. So I filled in the form with six physics courses, 
And then one day I seen this prospectus that was just sitting on the table and I just happened to open it up. It was for Liverpool. And I seen this course, Sports Science at Liverpool. And I was reading about the course and I thought, actually, that, that's right on my street because I loved exercise and I loved always getting fit and things. So I had to run over to the headmaster's office and search through the bag to get my application form out. And in those days, we still used Tipex. So then I had to Tipex out the form and then put, put this new course in, sent my application off, and then, of course, got accepted onto this course. Um, and, and there you have it, really. It was a five-minute five chance decision of me picking up this prospectus that really changed the next... Um, well, the whole course of my life and my career, really. Mm-hmm. So you you were a you were a football player. You played football growing up as well, and you yeah. were a pretty competitive athlete. Um, did you ever have uh, visions of being a professional football player? Yeah. I was football mad, Scotty, um, and I think like a lot of people in Northern Ireland, that they um, they're all football mad, really. And I played to a reasonable level. I played for Belfast schools. Um, I have three international caps for Northern Ireland because I played for Northern Ireland boys clubs when I was under 16. Um, and then I played semi-professional when I came to England. But I was never good enough to turn professional. Um, but that, that's fine. You know, I, I accepted that. And I loved the game still. And, and then I went down more of the academic route. And I always wanted to work in football at some point, which thankfully I did several years later. Did you do boxing yourself as well? Were you a competitive um, boxer? Well, what happened with boxing was I, I always loved boxing growing up again because it's it's a working class sport and it was quite big in Belfast. Um, and I, I stopped playing football when I was about 29 because I just didn't have the time anymore. And then I decided actually that I needed something else to fill my time. So I just walked off the street into one of the boxing gyms in Liverpool. Liverpool's a real hotbed of talent for boxing. There's a, there's a boxing gym on every street corner. You know, it's, it's that prolific, really. And I walked in, um, started training, didn't tell anyone what I did for a job. So I was just training in the gym for six months. And then after a while of, of getting to know people, they asked me what I did for a job and I told them. And then that was really how I started providing um, sports science support. Mm-hmm. To athletes, really, by again by um, just in in the backstreet boxing gym, really. So you were learning it, and now you were delivering it, in, in essence. In, in, a, in a, yes, yeah, and and I always felt that in order to um, understand the sport and get more respect off the athletes, then I had to get in the ring myself and get sparring and kind of just earn the respect. But it also helped me understand the sport better and help me understand what these guys really have to go to. You know, when you're getting up at five in the morning to go running, and then you're training again two or three times a day, and you're watching what you're eating all of the time. And I just wanted to really try and understand what these lads have to go through. Mm-hmm. So to swing back to what you had said at the beginning with the sort of traditionalistic uh, aspect of the sport of boxing, it's very much stayed true to that reality, whereas... I would say some sports have been sport, sports scienced into the next, um, you know, generation or model. Um, why do you think it stays true to to sort of what it has always been? What is the what is the the genesis or the driver for that? Yeah, it, it's a good question. It, I think a lot of it comes back to um, 
most people who end up boxing are are literally fighting to get away from something. Um, so that working class mentality is very much ingrained in them. Boxing is their way out, really. Um, but also the sport as it's as a whole doesn't really have much money in it. I mean, what what you see in Vegas and on a world title fight is really the tip of the iceberg. What you don't see is all those fighters who are fighting for minimal salaries um, and they're not earning big money at all. So the sport doesn't really have the level of income in it to, to really do those big sports science programs that other sports do. So it's kind of really been the coach and the boxer. And then if you can afford sports science support or you can afford an SNC coach, the boxer might go and employ it. But usually the coach delivers all of the sports science stuff, really. The, the coach does everything. The coach is the psychologist. The coach is the sports scientist. He sets all the training. There's also the boxing coach. Mm-hmm. There's very few fighters, although it is becoming more and more evident, who would now start to employ specialists. But that all depends on how much income they get to pay these guys. What do you, um, what do you see as the advantage to that and the disadvantage to that? when you look at other sports that have embraced all this specialization, you know, do you see, like you had mentioned at the beginning that it's almost like you like to, to work with those athletes because of the pureness of it. So what is, what is in your mind, the advantage to that purity and the disadvantage to it? Well, I think the advantage of, of the purity is the relationships can be so much more rich. So there's only three for people responsible for one athlete's performance plan. You get very close and you can have real close, high-quality relationships. Um, and there's no there's no blurring of the lines. Everyone kind of understands their roles. And there's a real trust there. They trust each other. I think what happens in, in other sports where the sports science team almost becomes bigger than the actual playing staff is you've got specialists who are specialists who are specialists. Um, and and there's so much crossover and so much differences in opinions that sometimes it's the athlete who suffers in the end because everyone is just not really sure of their role they're all um, there's a lot of job insecurities in those big professional sports and like I said before I think really it's the athlete who suffers Mm -hmm. yeah how did you find yourself um, in the world you probably, I mean, I, I'm just assuming, but you probably dreamed to some degree of working for, for a Liverpool or for a professional um, football team. And you ended up doing that. How did, how did that happen? And then what, what were the, um, the positive experiences of that? And what were the things that surprised you or you were sort of um, disappointed in? Yeah, well, I think you're right. I mean, when I was 18, starting university, I could only have dreamed of the opportunities that I've had in the last um, 15 years or so. What happened with getting into football was I'd actually applied for quite a few roles in professional football. And I kept getting interviews and and getting down to the last two. But it was the same feedback, which was usually, like, you gave a really nice interview and we really liked it, but you haven't got any experience. And, and I totally understood that because I didn't have experience and the people who were getting those jobs 
had five years experience of working in professional football. And it got to the stage where the people who were interviewing me were, were saying, I'm going to recommend you to all these different people. And then I kept getting more and more invites because they were actually recommending me for these different roles. But again, it would keep coming down to it that I get to the last two and I'd have no experience. Um, and then eventually what happened to Liverpool Football Club is that I've got to thank um, Peter Bruckner for this and Darren Burgess, who are two Australian sports medics and sports scientists. They came over to take over the sports medicine team in Liverpool and they were very much interested in, in science and research. And they recognised that because I had a research background, they were... Um, I guess they were willing to take the risk, if you like, was although I didn't have the practical experience of being in the front line of professional football, they were attracted by the research background. As a result, then they just offered me the position and that was all done through the university. And then over the last, well, I guess five or six years, we had a real research um, input into Liverpool Football Club through John Moore's University. We've graduated four or five PhD students who have all published research and that's kind of like that research active practitioner model, which I think is now becoming very commonplace in professional sport. It's, it's an excellent way to do research, but also to produce highly qualified applied research practitioners, if you like. What do you think's been the, um, you, you just talked of, you know, sort of a, a real positive uh, outcome of sports science getting connected into the world of professional soccer or any other uh, sport for that matter what do you think what do you think's the downside of it we're going back to that relationship piece and the and stuff around boxing do you, do you feel that there's a a counterbalance there that we sometimes don't recognize when we as as sports scientists wanting to to affect a change in those environments yeah look, we're, i think sports science is is guilty of trying to be um too complex at times you know, in, in my mind, good sports science is about translating the complex to super simple solutions. It has to be super simple. And, and what I find now is that a lot of sports scientists are coming up with all these training load metrics and so on, but actually they're not really making a difference or the metric isn't accurate or reliable or valid or it's based on a poor understanding of the underpinning physiology. Um, and I think I think sports science is in a bit of a, a transition period at the minute. It's, it's almost like everyone wants to count how far you run without actually thinking of why am I running this far in the first place or what is the physiology or what's the questions that we're trying to answer. And I think we kind of need to come back to basics at times. And when I've seen sports science done well, it's usually because it's a performance question that definitely determines performance it's based on high quality science but it's translated and delivered into a super simple solution that makes a difference mm. tell me about your this this kind of fork for you of going into academia and and you know there's definitely a, a, a major commitment to being an academic and then going into pro sport i mean they're almost dimensionally um, like maggots, magnets that are, that are 
counterpolar in a sense that they're pushing each other away versus attracting each other in some sense. So how have you been able to bridge that or manage that, the demand of your time and the, and the energy that you have to put in? Yeah, I mean, it, it's my identity now probably is someone who engages in research and applied practice. But I, I actually think that we should all be doing that, Scotty, because the two of them go hand in hand, really. Um, so I, I, I think we should really try and stop treating them as separate and, and saying I'm an academic or I'm a practitioner. Mm-hmm. If you're a sports, if you if you're truly a sports scientist, then you should be engaging in science and research to inform what you do in sport. In my mind, that's what a sports scientist is. And the two of them go hand in hand. Um, for me, I, I wanted to always do both because I didn't want to sit in my office for 40 years doing research and thinking, who's benefit from this? And like I mentioned before, if you're exposing yourself to different environments, you're going to learn so much more. Mm-hmm. So by going into the front line of elite sport, first of all, you ask better research questions. And then secondly, you can actually see if that research is making a difference and if it isn't, then you can tweak it and so on. In, in terms of balancing the both, for sure, it's um, it's hard to balance the both and especially year on year because the demands get more and more. You know, as, a, as an academic, we're, we're judged on all these silly metrics and publications and age indexes and so on. And then in sport, you're judged on, on winning. Well, that's the harsh reality is elite sports you judge them winning and, and I often feel that um, year on year the demands and the pressures go up to get better than last year and, and so on and that can be challenging and um, I'm sure everyone listening to this who works in those disciplines could all relate to that that's the biggest challenge is that drive to improve all the time and, and you drive yourself bananas after a while if you really get bogged down into that one of the best things that Steve Peters taught me was that you can't do more than your best. And so now I kind of judge myself on that metric is, am I doing my best today? Yeah, I was going to ask you, how do you draw your line in the sand? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you ensure that you don't get lost in that? Well, I think I'm getting better at it, Scotty. Um, I think I, I probably wasn't that creative at it maybe in the last five years, because I did feel this need to constantly get better all the time. And, and I still do that. Of course, I still do that. But the way to judge that is, am I doing my best? Because you can't do any more than your best. Mm. And so, again, Steve Peters taught me that. Dave Brailsford also taught me is you, you can't do more than your best, but you can also decide how hard you're going to work to be your best. And so those two things to me go hand in hand. And, and my ultimate judge of um, whether I'm doing a good job now is, is those two questions really is, am I working hard enough to be my best? And, and am I doing my best? And if I am, then you can't do any more than that. Mm-hmm. So, so rather than judging my success on last year, I published 15 papers. So now I need to publish 16. Then the year after that, I need to publish 17. It's just, it's all nonsense really, isn't it? It doesn't really matter. So when you're working in a in a super performance environment like you know Team Sky or what or Liverpool or whatever it is, where as you said, winning is the only seems to be the only benchmark on success. Um, 
it's a two framed question. One, how do you know you're, you're doing your best in essence? And then two, how have you, uh, in the work that you've done found a way to work with your colleagues to, to achieve life balance, uh, life health in some sense, because I find this industry tends to chew up people pretty, pretty badly. Um, have you found any secret sauce in, 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 in with the people you've worked with to, to create success and winning, but at the same time be more healthy human beings? Um, I don't think I've found the, the answer to that question or the secret to maintaining that. Um, I think when it comes to winning, look, the reality is, is we don't know we're going to win or not, regardless of what, what um, industry you're working in. I quite like the, one of my favorite books is the book by Bill Walsh, who used to coach the San Francisco 49ers. And the, and the title of that book is The Score Takes Care of Itself. And the whole philosophy is, is to not think about winning, but to think about everything that you need to do to potentially win in the first place. And, and again, that, a lot of that is the philosophy of what we try and do at, at Team Sky is we, we think of all of the little things that could contribute towards winning. And, it, and if you get super dialed on that, like really, really get dialed on all of those little things, more often than not, you will win. Yeah. Well, now, if you judge your success on winning, so let, let's say, let's say for instance, we have a rider who, who has a puncture or who crashes or something happens in the race that causes that rider not to win the race. But if you're, if your um, well-being is judging him winning the race, then that can be catastrophic for your well-being. But if your well-being is based on have you done everything that you can to give the rider that best chance of winning, then it's a different perception. Mm-hmm. And so now I, I think about different races or different sports and events and think, right, have I done everything that I possibly can to give this rider the best chance of winning? And that's a much more, more comforting experience to be in, I think thinking of the output all of the time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to segue to a part I do in my podcast, which is I discovered a book a number of years ago called The Day You Were Born, and it basically combines numerology with astrology, and I found sort of my purpose in this book. So I read everybody their purpose from the book. So you're a cancer too, and your purpose is to conquer your fears, direct your obsessions towards healthy goals, and use your strength to help others in need. The saying that goes with yours is the difference between genius and stupidity Stupidity is that genius has its limits. Extremes and the abnormal intrigue cancer too. The truth is the cancer too is creating smart and different, but they wouldn't have it any other way. Extremes can cause problems. They need to indulge their desires as well as those of others, which can lead to empty bank accounts, excess weight, or too much sex. <laughs> you name it. Their mood shifts Moods shift faster than their luck at the blackjack table. Depression can be a problem if they don't anchor themselves through work, faith, or self-awareness. Gifted with intuition, they can disarm a fake facade with one brutal, well-aimed remark and have a crowd or audience eating out of their hands. That's their challenge. They, they either give too much or bolt the door so that not even a wayward could find a space to crawl under the door. You hear, hear anything about that that sounds like you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I think with, with all of these things, you, I'm sure everyone could listen to that and find a little bit of themselves in that, regardless of the star sign. Um, I, I, do, I do relate to a lot of that. Um, 
I mean, a lot of people will say that I'm a workaholic and I think I've come to realise that I probably am, but I think I've realised one of the reasons why I was so. Um, and again, having lost my dad when I was 22 and then lost my mum to cancer when I was 29, I think I threw myself into work to try and help cope with that. Mm. Because it, when you're working, it's to me it was easy and it was safe. Um, and I enjoyed it, don't get me wrong. I love my job. I, I can't believe I get paid to study exercise. <laughs> to, to, I mean, to, to me, this is the best job in the world. But because I, I, I've re- only really in the last six months or so, I've realized that I was, I was using a lot of it to kind of take away that numbness of mm. losing my mom and my dad. Mm. Um, and now I'm trying to get some balance back and, and having realized that now it's um, I just feel a lot better for it actually to be honest what did you um, what did you learn learn about yourself recently that you didn't sort of understand about yourself before is it just that that you you were using work to try to to manage that pain so to speak um, yeah I, I learned that for sure um, I also learned that a lot of our, um, I guess I can speak for everyone here, is, is a lot of our interpretations of the world is based on what we've been exposed to and to a large part of what our parents have taught us and how our parents have interpreted things. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've also come to realise that just because our mums and dads may have, may have interpreted an event in a certain way, it doesn't mean that it's the right way. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that too many of us in life just assume that well, we need to think that because our moms and dads thought that. And, and I've kind of went back to the whole beginning, really, and, and questioned why I feel certain ways about things or why I've interpreted events certain ways. And I've realized that a large part of it was because of what my mom and dad thought. Mm. But it, does, it doesn't mean that it's right. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, even in dealing with my dad's death, I kind of dealt with that pretty quickly because that's what he would have done. He would have he would have said life goes on, so you have to adapt quickly, and it's all part of life. People live, people die. Be thankful for everything that you have, and move on. and And that's what I tried to do. Mm-hmm. But I've also realised that might have worked for him, but it probably didn't work for me, and I needed longer to grieve. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about yourself in becoming a dad? <sighs> um, I think those first. Those first few years were, I found it quite hard, if I'm being honest, again, because it brought up a lot of memories from my own mum and my own dad. Um, and I, I think a lot of men probably don't talk about this enough. In that everyone always tells you, oh, having kids is the best thing that can ever happen to you and all that. But I, I don't think a lot of men feel like that in the first two or three years. Mm. Because it's such a big adjustment for a man. Um, I also felt that the need to provide them was just astronomical because all of a sudden it wasn't about me anymore it was about the whole different dynamic and I felt a lot of pressure then of having to provide and and do the right thing having said all that you come out of that side and and then you do realize that it is the best thing in the world that can happen to you and by far the the best part of my day now is coming home and seeing my little boy and my little girl and just doing the real simple things and and, and I'm so glad that I can now 
feel that way because that, after everything else, that is what matters. Mm-hmm. When all things said and done, no matter what you achieve in your career or how much cars or money you have and all that stupid stuff, it doesn't really matter. It's such relationships that are at the heart of everything. And if you base your happiness on sound relationships, for sure, you'll be so much more happy. Yeah, I think that's one of the roles that they take in our lives is to have, it is a, a striking change in the first few years. It was certainly for me as well, but uh, that, that sort of moment of reflection that kind of makes you, uh, or the moments of reflection that make you ponder and understand really what life is all about is I think one of the great purposes of having children. <laughs> so going back to what you had just said about, you know, your parents' opinion and their what they taught you and sort of how that was expressed in your thought process and then self-reflecting on how that's not necessarily true. How do you, how do you sort of approach that in terms of your own um, fatherhood, like what you express to your kids and how you sort of let them find themselves in the world versus maybe being told what it is that James sort of believes, so to speak. I think it's, um, Again, in in every situation that presents itself, then there's always a reaction. But between that situation and the reaction, there's a little period of time where you can choose to react and you can can choose how you're going to react. I've got a lot better over the years of making the best use of that split second that's available. (laughs) Um, And in that split second, I might have different lines that I'll say to myself in certain situations. So if, if, um, I don't know, the kids, I'll walk, I'll go home tonight. Before I go in the door, I'll say to myself, right, there's a high probability that I'm going to walk into this house and it's going to be chaos. Um, And that's just part of life and enjoy it. And, and the kids could be fighting in the front room and the room will be a mess. And that, that can stress a lot of people out. But I, I've now come to the mindset of as long as you know that's going to happen and you expect it's going to happen, then you don't get stressed about it. And then actually you come to enjoy it because you walk in and you see them enjoying themselves. So I think it's a lot of it's about expectations and, um, and accepting it they're kids and they're different and they're, they're going to find their own way in their life. And of course we try and teach them right and wrong, but they're different from us. They're going to have different opinions from us. Mm-hmm. That's normal. That's healthy. How is that? And also working in the world of performance sport, like where, what do you see as your sort of um, center points for leadership in an environment um, sort of taking the pulse of an environment and performance kind of like you just described about your kids, that moment of pause before you walk in, how do you bring that into, in the performance environment that you, you work in every day? Yeah, I think, I think leadership actually is, I'm not an expert in leadership, Scotty, so I can't really proclaim to give the best advice here. But what I do think is leadership can often be similar to bringing up children. And the reason why I say this is like kids, kids will change over the years and what works when they're four will be very different to what works when they're 10. And what works on a Monday after school will be very different to what works on a Saturday morning. In the same way, in the performance environment, you might be interacting with a team of 20 athletes and 20 staff 
Um, and things change all the time. And, and there's always a reason why people behave the way they behave. And so I've, I've tried to get better at understanding people and, and understanding where they're coming from, what their take is in the world and why they think in a certain way. And, and that's helped a lot because then when, when I see someone reacting or giving comments in a certain way, rather than me judging them straight away, then you understand why they're behaving or reacting in that way. And then that allows me time to think about how I should respond back better to help the situation. So for sure, it's just like everything in life, it all comes back to people, doesn't it? And understanding people. Yeah. When you look at the different performance environments that you've worked in, um, what when you when you look at at say if soccer or a football versus a, a cycling, what are sort of the the clear differences between the two environments that maybe you struggled with or ch- were challenged to find a pulse on when you when you transitioned from one to the other? Um, I, I don't know if I if I struggled in making the transition. I think the environments are just different environments, really. Mm. One of my big reflections from working in football was because these guys are seen as superstars, they're on the front pages, they're on the back pages of newspapers, and quite often then we think that they are immune to any hurt or immune to any feelings. But then I realised again that they're just normal people. And just because they are on the TV or on the papers or earning astronomical amounts of money when it all said and done they're still people and they come to training every day with different sets of problems and and the same for the staff um, but because when I was working in the football club I was working with some pretty big personalities um, and then making the transition to cycling then was great for me because I'd learned I'd, well I hadn't learned but I had lots of experience of working with different types of people so then when I went into the cycling environment, to be honest, I found the people side easier, really, mm. because I had the experience at Liverpool. The, the difference was now learning a different sport because I hadn't worked in cycling before. I wasn't a cyclist. So I had to quickly learn the nuances of the sport. But the team the team was brilliant. You know, they gave me time to adapt um, and they helped me and coached me through and they're just great people and and very forward-thinking team who are always trying to improve, and they they certainly got more out of me than what I thought I was capable of. And that, that's what real leadership is, really, isn't it? What do you see as the difference in the psyche of the of the three athletes—a boxer, a footballer, and a and a cyclist? Well, I think in, in the football environment, it's probably not really limited to physical ability. If we're being honest. Um, in the boxing environment and in the cycling environment, there's so much more reliance on physiology and nutrition and so on. So you can make a lot more of a difference in those sports. I mean, cycling is the ultimate sport to work in if you're interested in performance nutrition because it can be the difference between winning and losing. And the riders recognize that. All of the staff recognize it. And so it's given the time that it deserves. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the nutrition, the... I guess the scope of the nutrition program and the attention that it's given in that sport is, is brilliant. It's really what it deserves and it's taken so seriously across the whole team. 
because it makes such a difference to performance. You can you can take you from a good rider to a great rider, or alternatively, it could it could lose the race for you if you get it wrong. There's a lot of people talking now, sort of about this interpretation that your stomach is almost your second brain. Where do you stand on sort of that viewpoint that that it that it sort of drives so much of of how you perform and how you how you deal with things in a, on a daily basis? Yeah, well, look, again, I'm no expert in this area, and I think it's a very um, it's a new area of research and one that's definitely going to take off a lot more. But for sure, the gut. The gut is an organ which um, interacts with so many different systems. Um, and definitely we, we need to understand that biology a lot better than what we are doing at the minute. I would say that's going to be one of the hottest topics, not just in sport nutrition, but in medicine, actually, in the years to come. I think mm-hmm. that will be a real attractive area of research. Mm-hmm. What's been your uh, biggest Achilles heel uh, in, in your work? You know, what you're good at, but it sometimes costs you. Um, probably that drive to it, I always like, we all start off and you think I'm going to get super dialed and have this nailed and perfect and if you keep thinking like that like I said before it'll drive you bananas because there's white noise all the time and you've just got to accept that there's going to be white noise all the time and again one of the things that Dave Brailsford often told me was to go for progress not perfection but for sure, my natural tendency is to think, right, this has to be done this way and that way and this way. And and you try and do too much too soon. Mm-hmm. But really, if you keep that progress, perfection, theme in your head at the forefront all of the times, it's just a lot more um, settling way to go about your business, really. Because mm-hmm. you drive yourself bananas the rest of the time. <laughs> if you... Um met James Morton a few weeks after your father passed away now, what would you say to him? Um, probably to talk more. Mm. Um, again, I think a lot of men, it, it's becoming quite trendy, isn't it, for mental health to not be an issue in men and to encourage men to talk. Um but actually, it's it's not trendy because it's a real issue, Scotty, I think. I I haven't talked enough over the years, especially to my, my girlfriend, um, because, because we're supposed to be strong, aren't we? And you're supposed to just get on with things. And, and I think, in fact, from, from 30s to 40s is a very important time for a man. And I, I see it a lot now in, in my circle of friends and colleagues is that we, we don't talk enough about those issues. Mm. So if I could look back, I would say, you know what, it's just talk about things because you'll feel so much better for it. And, and I would say that to every every man, that no matter what issues they're dealing with, you, you just feel so much better for talking about it. Great advice. To wrap this thing up, um, if you... Uh you will pass away one day from this earth, hopefully not for a long time. Um, how would you like to be remembered? Um, well, I, I don't really know, Scotty, because things will change over the years. Um, I think the phase of life that I'm in at the minute is I'd, I'd just like to be remembered as someone who tried the best and someone who tried to help others achieve the best. Um, 
someone who lived with a smile on his face and had fun. Um, but probably, you know, I guess the ultimate test for all of us is if we bring our children up the right way. Um, so I think, I guess, the ultimate form of success at this phase in my life at the minute will be have my children um, learned the things that I would like them to learn and do they know the difference between right and wrong and do they know how to treat people and so on because at the end of the day that's all you can pass on really mm-hmm. um, that's all the only thing you pass on in life really are your children mm-hmm. and if they're being passed on in the correct way then that's a life worth lived I think Awesome. Good way to finish. It's been an awesome uh, hour chatting with you, sir. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, yeah, no problem. Thank you. Hopefully it'll happen again sometime with a, with a beer in our hands. So there you go. Yes, yes that's, uh, <laughs> that's right up my street, Scott. <laughs> I, unfortunately, I couldn't fly over there and get to a pub with you. So we'll do this instead. Yeah. <laughs> Have a good day. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.